now bring you the Making Much of Jesus podcast featuring the late Dr. Jack Hudson, the founding pastor of the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now today's edition of the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If you have your Bible, let's turn over to the book of the Revelations, if you will, and I want to share with you just a little thought. I prayed much this morning. Uh, I shouldn't say just this morning, but I prayed so much that the Lord would give me the message that was needed for this morning, first time back, and uh, so on. And I just wanted to keep it low-key and something a little simple. And I've been thinking about some of these things that I'll speak to you tonight for, well, ever since I've been down. And I want you to turn now to the book of the Revelation, chapter number 4. And we'll begin reading verse number 1. Revelations chapter 4, verse number 1, page 1334 in your Schofield Bibles. And to give you the proper setting for this, as you know now, and as Brother Brooks has been doing so wonderfully on Wednesday night, bringing messages from the seven churches. I heard him last Wednesday night, and my own heart was blessed. Now, he's, he's completed his messages to the church. And now, you remember, uh, the Lord had taken John the Beloved and John the Disciple and had shown him these things. And now he's showing him, give him the first glimpse of heaven. Now, you really, in this chapter, you don't go into heaven in the real sense of the word. You don't walk down the golden streets. You don't walk up and feel the pearly gates. You don't walk over to the river of life and see what's going on there. You're just not time yet. You just stand there and look in. Now, I got to thinking about it, and I know in traveling many times, and especially in tours overseas and things, usually when we go into a, a city that stands out in the Word of God or a city that, you, for example, like Rome or whatever, when you come to the city limits, you usually stop, and people like to take pictures of the sign that says, uh, the, you know, Rome or Jerusalem or uh, Corinthians or Corinth or other, or something of that sort. And I got to thinking about chapter 4 here is like being at the city limits of heaven just looking in. Now, when I'm traveling, I get a little excited when I get to the city limits of a city, especially if it's the city where I'm going, because I know it isn't just a little ways. You're in the city. You're not in the hub of it. You're not to the place you're going, but you're at least in the city limits. Now, that's the way I feel about chapter 4. It's like being at the city limits of heaven. Now, remember this. No one will ever stand there. I have no reference tonight to anybody standing at the city limits unless they're born again. But I want you to think with me a little bit what it's going to be like at the city limits. Now, I'm not indicating, but I have because I have no scripture to back it up, that when we're taken up in the rapture and go to be with the Lord, that he's going to stop at the city limits and let us look in. I don't think that at all. But I do think it might be well to think about it so that you, using human expressions, that we might better understand the message that I want you to see tonight. Now we shall read together chapter number four, the book of the Revelation. After this, that is after he had received the messages of the seven church, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now I'll pause there long enough to take you back up to verse number 20, where the Lord said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I want you to always remember those two doors. The first door mentioned here is the door of our heart. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in and sup with him. That's a very personal thing. And then he with me. Personal, you see. Now God is saying, if here on the face of this earth, 
while he's knocking on your heart's door by faith and through the word of God and by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, while he's knocking on the door, if you open the door and let him in, that is if you get saved, then he says, I'll open the door in heaven for you. Now, this is what he's saying. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, I want you to remember, again, go back in our minds for a moment to the gospel of John. Jesus Christ said, I am the door. By me, if you shall enter in. Now, no man cometh in any other way. It's the door. So if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, you open the door, in essence, and say, Lord Jesus, why don't you come in and stay with me, sup with me? And then he says, if you do that, then I'll have you into my place for supper, so to speak. He will sup, literally means supper with me, the evening meal. Now, I looked and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat uh, he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty elders. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, Father, unless the Holy Spirit shares this, this look with us, then we will have missed it all. And so we commit the service now to the Holy Spirit of God, who shall be our teacher. And we pray that the invitation as it's given shall be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the convictions that are made, given, and that the commitments that are made shall be under the Holy Spirit. And we ask this and believe it and trust it, because we ask it in the name that's above every name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. I get so excited when I get to the fourth chapter because it's the first time in the Word of God that we actually get to look into heaven. And of course, all eyes are not looking at the golden streets or the pearly gates or the river of life. They're looking to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we stand there looking over the shoulder of John as he's writing, it seems like it takes him so long to me to get to the main point, and I just always hurry. I'm just pushing near to the sea. And as I stand there waiting, so to speak, at the city limits, I want to look in and see what it's like. Have you ever driven into a city and you could see the skyline? And my, sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes you're coming in, especially over a place where it's a little higher than the city and look down upon it. What a beautiful thing it is. I always, I never cease to be fascinated. When I lived in Chattanooga and was attending Tennessee Temple Schools, and uh, I lived on one section of the town where I had to go through the Bachman tubes. And as I came into the city from Eastridge, uh, I was considerably higher than the city. I'd look down and always it fascinated me early in the morning, because I obviously went to school early. And you'd see the buildings down there as they jutted up through the clouds many times, the haze that was still down in the low place. And it looked like giant fingers sticking there, uh, poking up through the, the atmosphere and rising. Sometimes there would be no fog or smog or none of the, the clouds drifting over it. Sometimes you could see it glittering. Always when I turned there as I came out of Bachman Tube and started down off of Eastridge and looked down over the city of Chattanooga, always it would be a blessing to my heart. I'd look and I could see the area, couldn't see the church, but see the area of the church, Highland Park Baptist Church and Tennessee Temple Schools to where I'd be in a little bit. I don't know how many times in the hundreds I drove that way. It never ceased to fascinate me.
Now, beloved, I've read the book of the Revelation. I've studied through it. I've taught through it on several occasions. It never ceases to fascinate me when I come to the fourth chapter and I stand, so to speak, at the city limits and I get my first glimpse on the inside. Now, I want you, if you will, to think about us, if we could go and stand there at the city limits and look in for a moment. I believe there'd be some things that would, maybe as we stand there and look in, that we'd realize how very unimportant that things down here become after we get there. How much more important the things that'll be when we get there. For example, I can almost in my mind see ourselves as we stop there. And maybe somebody would say, you know, while we're waiting to get in, while we're waiting here at the city limits and look in, I, I, I wonder if you maybe noticed my physical attraction. I wonder if you've ever noticed how beautiful I really am. Now, nobody would say that, obviously, but it might be their thought in their heart. But I want you to think about in your mind how very unimportant physical beauty is going to be standing at the city limits of heaven. For all you'd have to do is you'd look and see the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man who has ever lived upon the face of this earth. All you'd have to do is just take your eye just for a moment out of that peripheral vision that I mentioned a moment ago. And there you'd see him who's the fairest of 10,000, the bright and the morning star. And there is a rainbow curled around his shoulder. And what good would physical beauty be to anybody when you're standing at the city limits of heaven? How very unimportant it's going to be. Supposing somebody else come by. Maybe we're just waiting and killing time. And somebody says, I wonder if you noticed how materially blessed I was on the face of the earth. I wonder if you noticed the wealth. And it might be a multi-millionaire. Let's just go another step and say that there were multi-billionaire. I don't even know how much money that would be. But supposing he was the richest man that had ever lived on the face of this earth. How very unimportant his riches would be. How very unimportant it would be to us. And how very unimpressed we'd be. For all we'd have to do is look and we'd see streets that are paved with pure gold. I'd look and I'd see a pearl at one of the gates. There are 12 of them. And I'd see one gate with a pearl that the pearl itself would be worth more than all this earth put together. In another place in the book of the Revelation, it tells about the foundation. And in it are mentioned diamonds. There are diamonds there in the foundation that are bigger than my two fists put together. And when somebody is trying to impress me with the wealth that they had here on the face of this earth, I just merely have to look and I see those golden streets and the pearly gates and I see those precious stones and the foundation and how very unimportant wealth is going to be there. I wondered in my mind as I got to thinking about it, maybe somebody will come by and somebody will nudge another and said, do you see that person? Why, they, they, they were probably the most famous person who ever lived. Why, their name was on television all the time. And I think about the politicians and I think about the pe people in, in the entertainment world. Names known virtually around this world. And we look at them and we see how very unimportant it was because I can again just, I don't even have to shift my eye from that person that's making the, the boast. I can just out of the peripheral vision of my eye, I see him who the Bible says has a name that's above every name. And that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess him as Lord to the glory of the Father. I think in my mind about maybe here somebody will say, uh, I believe from what I've studied, I have no way of knowing just what little I've studied. Perhaps Michelangelo was a Christian. Uh, now, I've read much of his, uh, about him. I, it's always been interesting to me. The three years that he spent uh, during his working hours lying on his back during the fresco there in the Sistine Chapel in Rome, I stood and admired it so greatly. The long hours that he worked and how the things that he did. 
Perhaps El Greco, who painted the disciples, shut himself away for a year. Nobody ever contacted him but his housekeeper. And there he wanted to be completely alone and meditated and perhaps asked the Holy Spirit to give him a, 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 a vision, so to speak, of how these disciples look. I'm not sure. I don't know if they were born-again believers or not. All I'm saying, I'm sure there will be born-again artists there. And maybe they'll walk by. And maybe somebody say, do you realize that's one of the greatest artists who ever lived on the face of the earth? Why, their blend of color and the way that they could get depth and the way that they could blend things together. They're the most famous artists who ever lived on the face of the earth. I don't think it impresses too much. Not that we don't appreciate art and beauty. But as we'd stand there and look at him, we realize he's the one who painted the rose. He's the one that put the rose in the little baby's cheeks and colored the hair. He's the one that put the song in their hearts. And he's the one that painted the desert. He's the one that made the flowers and the blends of all the colors that they are. And when we look at the greatest artist who's ever lived on the face of this earth, just one glimpse of him who made all the colors and made all the things will make that person seem so insignificant. I'm trying to get us to see as we stand at the city limits of heaven how very unimportant things there will be that seem so important down here. Perhaps there'll be another one, maybe a musician. Now we thank God for musicians. We thank God for the beautiful music and how it expresses and glorifies the Lord. But supposing we say, say, here is one of the greatest musicians who ever lived on the face of the earth. Why, they compose this and they compose that. Why, look how impressive they are. And we'd look over there at him who sat on the throne with the rainbow curled around his shoulders. And he's the one who has the copyright on every song that a bird has ever sung. And how could I be impressed with the best that the world had to offer when I look at him who so at the, the, the superlatives fail completely when you begin to describe him? I'm saying that to say this. Sometimes we get our priorities all confused and we put the importance on things down here. I've got a little thing on my desk and I, I'm giving it away. I'm giving it away, but I must, I think, because the Holy Spirit, I believe, is leading me to say it. There's four little words that I, I'm going to preach to you on before long, as soon as God gives me. I was hoping maybe that he'd let me preach on the night, but it didn't, didn't seem just to be the exact time. The four words are this, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. I, it, it's on a little bronze, little, little marble plaque. My daughter had it made for me while I was in the hospital, and she brought it and put it there where I could see it. It stands up just about the size of my hand on marble. There it is, four words, this too shall pass. Miss Grace Armstrong was in the hospital the same time I was, and she was just a few doors up, and when they let me get up and walk, I went up there one day and I said, Mrs. Armstrong, I want you to take this and keep it in your room for a day or two because uh, you shared something with me many years ago, and I've never forgotten, and I want to share. This too shall pass. You remember that little poem I told you about? I was in the hospital, and again, no visitor sign, and, and Mrs. Armstrong, it seems like, God takes me to the hospital and takes her so that we can help one another, I guess. Miss Armstrong, you stay strong from now on, will you? She was here this morning for the first time. She had a, a gallbladder, that word that doesn't have that rhythm to it, you know, but it, it hurts. It hurts terribly. And she had that taken out. And Miss Hagler was over there and had gallbladder and gallstones taken out. And I'm going to think of a new word for that so that you ladies will have something. But uh, I was in the hospital and one night, uh, I, everybody had gone, it gotten quiet, and I heard a, and I said, yes, and Mr. Hall Armstrong said, uh, Pastor, I won't stay but a minute, but my wife has copied a little poem out of the back of a card, and she wanted you to have it, 
And she, he brought it in, and I got it, and I looked at it. You've heard me quote it many times. Here's what it said. She didn't compose it. She just copied it off a little card because it meant so much to her. A bird paused in its flight and landed on a bough too slight, and yet it continued to sing, for it had wings. I, I, guess, I guess in one sense of the word, I was about the lowest that I'd been in a long time because uh, I had despaired so. It was my arthritis then, and oh, it was so bad. And uh, I wondered if maybe God was through with me as far as preaching, and I said, maybe God let me write a little, or maybe God let me speak. I, I was at a low point, and I got to thinking about that. I, can you see that little bird flying along? And he landed when, when we were down at the coast one morning early, my wife and I walked out on the porch and sat down, and there were some of those sea oats. Do you know what they are? They look like shot little wheat, and they're, they stand up about this high, and when the wind blows, they bend over. And here came a bird, and the bird came along and landed on that little thing, and it almost broke down. The bird didn't seem to be concerned at all, for if it had broken, the bird had just fluttered its wings and just started flying again. That's what it meant. A bird, fought, a, a bird paused in its flight, and landed on a bough too slight. And yet it continued to sing, for it had wings. So I took it up there, and I said, Now, you, that poem was such a blessing to me. I want this to be a blessing to you. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Beloved, it doesn't matter if you're in the depths of despondency. It doesn't matter if you're on the height of ecstasy. It's going to pass. This too shall pass. Now, I believe that's what we all understand. It doesn't matter what we may accomplish here. It doesn't matter what we may do. It's going to pass. The only thing that's going to be important when we stand at the city limits of heaven are some things that I want to say to you. First of all, I believe there will be some important things there. And I believe that if, when we stand there, I often wonder... I don't know God hasn't revealed to me because he doesn't have to consult me about these things. I've looked through the Bible. I'm not sure of the order in which God will approach us. I don't know. But from reading the Word of God, I don't know that I'm too far wrong in what I'm going to say to you. I wonder maybe while we're standing there and we're, our necks are nearly broken, even our new glorified necks because that's about all we've done, just looked around at the beauty. Nobody here can impress us now. All of our eyes are on the central figure. We see one who's incomparable. No one can even come close to comparing with him, and we just look at him. It looks as if we could look at him for 10 million years and still not see enough of him, and we're standing there looking. Then he speaks with the voice as the voice of many waters. And I wonder if he isn't going to say first, I want you faithful ones to come on over here for a minute. You know, that's what he says. Uh, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And he's going to call. I, I believe this. I'm not just preaching now as the saying is. I, I'm telling you what I feel. I thought about Mrs. Eubanks up in her 80s, one of her charter members. While she's been here, God took her husband home many years ago. She's just as faithful as she can be. And I wonder if God isn't going to say, Miss Eubanks, and, and he'll, God, God will call them from every church like that, those faithful people that's been faithful to the attendants, and they, they've been there rain and shine. They've been there when the pastor was and when he wasn't. They've been there when, you know, they had the special singing. They was there when they didn't have special singing. That, they were just going because that's where God met with them, and they went there because Christ loved the church, and they loved it too, and they wanted to be there because that's where God loved. And so they, they'd be their faith. God's going to call the faithful ones over there. And he's going to say to them, I'm, I'm glad you were faithful to my church. I love the church. I loved it so much that I gave myself for it. And I'm, I'm so glad that you were faithful. 
sit down here, let's talk a little while, and I believe he's maybe going to have them sit down and maybe some of the rest of us, and I believe preachers, maybe some of us, will have to stand and wait a little while while God deals with those faithful ones that just in their place every time. You just look out, you know, where they are. And I believe if it's a comfort to a pastor, don't you know it must be that much more to the Lord? When he stands and looks out and he sees that person every time, every time, they're not carried away by this or that, and they're not tossed by every wind of doctrine, and they're not like hobos wherever free hand ideas they run over here. No, they're just there. They're just there because that's where Christ wants them. God says, now come on, you've been faithful to the church. I want you to sit down here. Then he's going to say, I, 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 I want you to know I'm thankful to you, not only being faithful to the church, but I want, you to, I, want to, I, I, I want you to know that I remember that faithful prayer every morning or night or noon, whenever it was you prayed. And you remembered other people. You remembered the people that was having some marital difficulties down the street, and you didn't forget to pray for them. And you didn't forget that teenage boy or girl maybe was having a little difficulty adjusting, and you prayed for them. Instead of criticizing, you prayed for them. I remember all that. You know, in the book of Malachi, God says it, that he has all of our prayers. Did you know that? Every tear that we've ever shed, God says he has in a bottle. God knows about these things. And God says, I know you prayed, and I, I know how you prayed for your pastor. I know how you went in and sometimes he preached not so good and sometimes maybe I, I, I made him shut up and I blessed the folk and, and you still prayed for him. And sometimes he struggled and tried and was in the flesh and you still loved him and prayed for him. And he says, I want you to know I thank you for that. You see at the city limits of heaven, a lot of these things that we think is important now is not going to be worth that much to us. But God's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, faithful to my church, faithful in prayer. Then he's going to say, now, you folk like Miss Eubanks and so on, I want you to know, brother, I, I watched down there a long time, and I, I saw you take that little pension check, and you'd get it cashed, and you'd take those little crumpled dollar bills, and you'd say, now, this belongs to the Lord. You know, uh, as I told you, my, our family, we sit around sometimes, not always just at night, just seemed like when we have maybe breakfast sometime, we say, now what was the greatest blessing you got either today, if it was at night, or yesterday, if it was in the morning? And we'll say, well, this and that and the other, and sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes somebody said something to you. I said the other day, my family, uh, since I, uh, I talked to Mr. Darby, you know, God bless him, 82 or 3 years old, works just as hard. And uh, he said he got a little job. He says most time he doesn't charge anybody anything, but uh, he told him that I have to charge you $2 and a half for that. And then he said, I thought for a minute. He said, no, now, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I'd have to charge you $2.75 because 25 cents of that, that'd be a tithe, 10% of $2.50. and a half. said, I'd have to charge you $2.75. He said, that's 25 cents for Jesus. And he, he just so thrilled. He said, Pastor, I made a quarter for Jesus. And, and I said, God, don't you believe God's going to bless people like that? I, I believe God's going to keep us out there waiting and said, you, you sorry folks, stand out there a little bit. Let me bless my faithful ones. He's been faithful in their tithing. And God's going to have men and women of means, and they've been faithful in their giving. And God's going to bless them, and God's going to reward them, and God's going to do it. And I believe he'll do it. And I believe God's going to be, I believe God's going to say to those that have been faithful in their business and faithful in their working. Did you know a lot of folk right today will criticize people for this and criticize people for that, and they'll beat time on their employers? Did you know that's wrong in the eyes of God? God's got a whole chapters in the Bible about that. I believe that I believe that if we steal an hour from our employer, uh, I, I believe that it's just the same as stealing money. Did you know that? 
And God says, now you've been faithful in your business and you've been faithful as an employer. And he says, I want you to come over here and sit down. And then I, I think this, I, I believe then God's going to say to them, maybe not in this order. I, I'm just, it may be, maybe together. I don't know. But the only way I know to bring it to you is the way I can see it and understand it. I believe God's going to say, now I want you that were witnesses for me. Oh, so much in the Bible, my faithful witnesses, you know. They witness until their death. Even in their death, they were witnesses for the Lord. And God's going to say, now I want you to come on over here. Now I'm understanding there, if maybe while we're maybe looking at the great beauties and the famous men and maybe, you know, well-known people in the sports realm and the politicians and I could go on down the line. I could exhaust all my time. But I wonder why we're standing there, if that will be important. You know, some of you go halfway around the world, see some kind of famous rock somebody or some kind of a famous uh, movie star or something of that sort. And uh, if some of them say, they'll be there. And uh, you, you, But you won't be excited about that. I'll tell you what you'll be doing. You're going to be looking and you'll say, has anybody seen my husband? And they'll say, well, I've been all up and down looking and I've met a lot of folk, but maybe, maybe somebody else has seen him and, and they'll look again. And maybe they'll walk down and they'll say, you know, I don't believe he's here. And they'll walk again and walk again and walk again and look and look. And you'll see some man over there and he says, I wonder if anybody's seen my wife. And they'll say, I don't believe I have. I've seen somebody else around here, one of your neighbors, but I don't believe I've seen your wife. And he starts walking up and down and looking and maybe trying his best to find them. And he looks and he looks and he looks and he looks and he looks. But finally the truth comes down in his heart and there's a coldness down in his soul. And he's standing there at the city limits of heaven and he knows he's going in. But he knows he hasn't been faithful in his witnessing. And the husband and wife's not there. He thinks about how they loved one another and the times of blessings and the times of heartache they had together. And he says, oh my God, if I could just live it over. I'll tell you something else. Now listen to me. I see maybe a husband and wife when they're united and they stand there and one of them says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And the other one says, I am too. And I don't know where they'll hug in heaven or not. I don't know. But I believe they'll be glad to see one another. And suddenly they'll say, wait a minute, what about the children? And they'll say, well, I saw John and I saw this one and I saw that one. And they'll start looking around and I don't know how many. Maybe they have one child, two, maybe five or six, maybe even ten. But think about it when they say, well, we've got eight children, you know, and there's only six of them here. Wife, husband, my God, we failed. We tried to do this and that and the other and impress the world, but our children are not here. Oh, listen, a lot of these things that you think are important right now are not going to be nearly as important as you think they are. Some of you would stay up all night long trying to get your children ready for some social event, but you wouldn't pray an hour. You wouldn't be concerned about them. Some of you think about your brothers and sisters and, you, and maybe mother, father, maybe, maybe your next door neighbor, somebody. You'll start looking around and you'll realize then how important it was to witness and how unimportant a lot of these other things seem to be. You'll think then of 10,000 ways that you could have done something, that you could have done something to have reached those people for the Lord. 
You said, oh, if I just had it to do over. And you'd say, if I had it to do over, if God had let me go back down, I believe I'd try to not win my family only and not win, win my neighborhood only. He, you'd say, I believe if God let me go down, I'd try to win a city for God. I believe we'd do it. I believe we'd do it. And when you stand at the city limits of heaven and looking in and you seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of heaven and your lost loved ones there, maybe somebody that you love and will give your life for, but you've just never reached for Jesus. I want to tell you something. It's going to become important, man. But you know the tragedy of it? It's going to be too late. One of the saddest verses in the Bible to me is found over there in the book of Hebrews when it's talking about Esau. And it says, though he sought it carefully with tears. And I brought a message some years ago. I remember on it. When it's too late to cry. Beloved, all your tears. And I believe that's where the tears are going to be generated. The Bible says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I believe that's where it's going to be. When you realize that they're not there. Then I believe that when you stand there then. I believe that God's going to say then to not only to the faithful and not only to the ones that have witnessed for him. And I believe then, I believe God's going to say now, those of you that didn't leave your first love, you come on over here. I want to talk to you a little bit. And we'll sit down and uh, uh, forgive me for saying we. I didn't mean it in that sense. God will have them over. I doubt seriously I'll be in it. I doubt seriously. And I'm not just preaching. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you. Those that never left their first love, never got their hearts and minds centered on some things of this world or maybe a position or maybe something for their children or something for their husband or wife that put it or them in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, you know, the world has so many things to offer. The devil came to you with so many temptations, but you never really left your first love. Never one time. I was always thought of. You know, when I was in the hospital, I've told you many times, I've found my faith has to be anchored in the Word. It can't just float around like a kite, you know. I, I have to find a place for it to anchor in the Word. And so I had faith that God would see me through. I had faith that everything would be all right. But I said, now, Lord, uh, I, I need my verse. And, and uh, he said, all right, I, I, I'll always do that. And he's always been so good. I can't ever remember a crisis in my life, not one time, that God hasn't given me a verse. That just It was like building a bridge over a swamp. God just kept my feet dry. It was just like God protected you in the midst of a blizzard. God just put a fur coat around you. I'm talking about God's Word can do that. And I said, now, Lord, I need, I need me a verse now that will take me through the operating room and, and, the, and through the, the, all the other things. And I, I just pray that you'll give it to me. I had many prayers. When we built this, you know, we built it on Jeremiah 33, 3. And incidentally, that's what we gave the doctors today, a little plaque with Jeremiah 33, 3 on it. Amen. 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 You think that's, I thought that was about, but, but, and we gave the nurses a little white New Testament, the Word of God. See, we believe in getting the Word out. Well, I'm saying that to say this. Uh, and so I said, now, Lord, I'd sure like to have my verse. And so uh, he said, all right, now, here's one you can cling to. He says, hell, can't shake it loose, and it'll take care of you when you go in the operating room. It'll take care of you when you come out. It'll guide the surgeon's hand. It'll take care of the nurses as they minister to you day by day. It'll take care of your family when I'm away. It'll, it'll watch over the church. Uh, it'll watch over the good men that are there working so faithfully. It'll, do, it'll take care of everything. And I said, Lord, I, I'm ready for it now. He said, it's, it's a verse you already know. It's found in the book of Isaiah. 
Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And that word stayed means just keeping it on the Lord, admitting that you don't know how to solve it, but you're just trusting, depending upon the Lord. And oh, the peace, the peace that Christ can give when your mind is stayed on thee, not ever changing, not ever moving. Now, he said, you remember concerning the church at Ephesus, he says, Nevertheless, I'm somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You don't lose it. You just transfer it somewhere else. And I believe God will call that crowd and he'll say, Now, you, you never left that first love. Why, he said, I was his first in your life all the time. And uh, you loved me when things were going good and you loved me when things weren't going so good. You loved me when, I, when you were sick and you loved me when you were well. You loved me when you had enough to pay your bills and you loved me when you didn't have them. And when you had plenty in the cupboard and plenty extra left over at meals and so on, you loved me. And when you didn't have anything, you still loved me. And he says, God bless you. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Oh, beloved, if we could understand these things, then I think maybe he'll then say, now there's some of you that's paid an awful price. Some of you have really paid the price for serving me. You know, I'll be honest with you. Some of us have it pretty easy as Christians, especially boys and girls brought up in a Christian home, saved with Christian parents. I, I'm not saying that it's sometimes they face obstacles in the world and not taken away from them, but I'm saying it isn't as hard sometimes as a boy or girl who gets saved and their parents are not Christians. Maybe they forbid them to go to church or tell them they, they, they can't serve the Lord and it has to be done in secret. And some of us have had it pretty easy. It's been pretty easy. But I want to tell you something, beloved. There's some people that's paid a price for serving the Lord. Some people have had to give up jobs. Some people have had to give up friends. Some people have had to give up prominence and a position in this world in order to come down and get into the right position of serving Jesus Christ. Some people have paid a price. I remember a man said one time, talking about paying the cost of serving Jesus. Some people says, well, it just costs too much. I'd have to give up this. Some of you right here tonight will become Christians, but you know you'd have to quit that crowd you're running with. You know you'd clean up your language. You know that you'd have to take a stand for Christ that some of you are not, uh, not ready at this time to do. You say there's just too great a cost to really live for Jesus. And I heard the man say this, and I, I applied it to my, to my Christian life. And maybe it'll apply to yours. But he said, you know, I had a young I had a boy, and I watched him grow, and he said, I remember the times I used to sit around and say, boy, you know, that boy wears out a pair of shoes. It seemed to me like every month. I've never seen a boy so hard on shoes and said, why his jackets, he'd forget them and leave them on the ball field and he'd, he'd be out playing and we'd have to buy him another jacket and the ones he did keep, why he'd scuff them around and hadn't, uh, you know, get stuff on him and it seemed like spending money all the time for shoes and jackets and he'd, he'd get down on his knees and playing marbles and wore out the knees of them and he said, my, it just cost me so much and had to take him to the dentist and the orthodontist and take him and get inoculated. He said, it just seemed like it was money all the time. There were books and book fees and it was this and that. He said, he just spent money all the time on that boy. But he said, you know, it doesn't cost me a dime now, not a dime. It doesn't cost me a penny. Don't have to buy him any more shoes. Don't have to buy him a jacket. I don't have to take him to the dentist and get his teeth straightened and the orthodontist and I don't have to spend any money anymore on him. You see, he's out in the cemetery. He doesn't cost me a dime. He's dead. It doesn't cost me a dime anymore. I want to ask you a question. 
Which way would you rather have it? Would you rather have your children where it costs you to buy them shoes and clothes and have their teeth straightened and pay their book fees and pay their tuition to keep them in school? Or you rather not have that expense and have them out in the cemetery? You say, Brother Hudson, don't be ridiculous. But I'm only being ridiculous to make this point. Your Christian life is exactly the same way. If it isn't costing you something to serve Jesus Christ, chances are your faith is in a cemetery somewhere. I, I walked through over in the offices there with the doctors and, the, and their wives, and they were so gracious, and they said to extend to you their thanks for inviting them out here to be with us on this very special day. And I said to the doctors, it's all ours. And one lady, the doctor from uh, Dr. Moeller and his wife, very precious couple, uh, met him obviously for the first time. They were visiting Dr. Arendel, who was my surgeon, and he brought him along with him. And she made the remark. She looked at a plaque we have hanging in the office in there, and it says this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, could they find enough evidence to convict you? Now think about that. If you were arrested for being a Christian, could they find enough evidence to convict you? And she said, you know, that's a tremendous thought. I'm saying that to say this. Unless it's costing you something to serve Jesus Christ, chances are your faith is a dead faith. The book of James says, a faith that does not produce works is a dead faith being alone. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have people that will say things against you. You know, the devil knows how for them to say things that hurt you, don't you? It'll hurt you. If they find out it doesn't hurt you, they'll say something about those you love. They'll say something about your highest motives and the things that to you are so precious and sacred, and yet they'll find fault and say something about them. It's going to cost you. And beloved, until you realize when you stand there to sit in the image of heaven and you look in and you see him, and I believe from the depths of my soul that Jesus Christ will have the scar, not scars, but the wound still in his hands and his feet. And I look and I see that. Now, we'll have new and glorified bodies. I know that. But uh, I've made up my mind. If, if Paul's body, of course, will be glorified. And if he doesn't have a mark around his neck, in my mind, I'm going to put one. And when I look at him, I'm going to see it where it's there or not. And it's going to look like his collar was too tight, but you know it wasn't. That's where they cut his head off. And I stand there and look at those martyrs and I think of Hebrews 11. And I read about them that they, the Bible says in there they were sawn asunder. Do you know what that means? They were sawed in two. Fox's book of martyrs says that they were placed into a, to a hollow log, log. And while they were there, helpless, they took, as we'd think, a cross-cut saw and cut the log and that human flesh in two because they served Jesus. The Bible says they wandered around destitute. That meant they had nothing. All they had to wear, the Bible says, was sheepskin. They paid a price. I see the ones that were martyrs and they shed their blood for Jesus Christ. And I see them standing there. I see those missionaries that went to those Aka Indians that this play will be about. And I see them as they gave their life blood and one of their bodies went down the, the, the little creek that was running nearby and they found him later down, good ways downstream. 
when their family's in the plane and the first time they took them, they flew and circled over that little place where they landed that little tiny plane and those Aka Indians had killed those missionaries that were there to tell them of the grace of God. And one of the missionaries' wife says, Oh, what a beautiful cemetery. What a beautiful cemetery. And the grace of God was so great that later one of the little girls, a little daughter of a murdered missionary, was baptized by one of those, quote, savages who had trusted Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. And he stood there with his teeth filed, as was the custom of the savage in his day. But now he had received Christ, and he baptized in the water where her father had been murdered by himself. And he baptized that little girl. And we stand and look at those people. And some of us would have to say, I quit the church because somebody said a little something bad about me. Somebody said something. Truthful or untruthful doesn't matter. I'm trying to say to you, beloved, we're going to look at the cost in and we're going to think about it. You see, if it's not costing you, if it isn't costing you, chances are your faith is dead. Now, I believe there's another city limits. I believe maybe that there's a city limits of hell. The Bible says that when a person dies, instantly, instantly they go to hell. But maybe if we could stand, if we had time and look there at the 16th chapter of Luke, I believe God takes us to the city limits and says, now I want you to go all the way in there. It's too horrible. It's too horrible. It's too horrible. I heard a missionary say one time, and I'd never thought about it. He said, I have heard many men say, if God would take us all to hell for a little bit, we'd all become missionaries. I have heard it. I've heard many men say it's not altogether a bad thought, but he went on beyond that. I thought and gave a better thought when he said this. He said, but I do not agree. He said, if we could see what people are suffering in hell, it wouldn't make missionaries out of it. He said it would make an insane asylum because we'd absolutely go out of our mind. I don't know but what that isn't the better thought. He said, I tell you what will make missionaries out of us. He said, if we could just look into heaven for a few minutes and see the glories of God and His love, and His compassion, and His goodness, and for all eternity, and you're in a glorified body that'll never know sin, and pain, and heartache, and sickness. He said, then that's what would make us missionaries. Beloved, but there, I believe that God takes us in Luke 16 to the city limits of hell, and He says, now I want you to look. And for a moment, just for a second, it's as if God just for a moment just pulled back the curtain and let us just get a glimpse. We don't really see it other than that which is implanted in our mind. Then he pushes the gate back shut because he knows our human minds just cannot comprehend. Neither could our souls understand how horrible it really is. He lets you stand there unsaved person and he says, is it really worth it? Are those friends really worth going to hell over? Is that sin that you hold so precious that you're like somebody swinging on a rope and God tries to save and you, you cling to it and God pulled you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and you won't turn loose and you stand there and when you stand on the city limits of hell, you'll realize that nothing this world had if you could have taken it every bit altogether. Nothing would be worth going to hell over. The rich man that said, stood and he said, he said, pray thee that you send somebody back to my five brothers, lest they come to this awful place of torment. His only concern then was somebody reaching his brothers. Beloved, I'm saying to you as a Christian, if we could stand at the city limits of heaven and look into it, we'd realize how very unimportant a lot of the things that we put great importance on down here, how priorities are all mixed up. 
And it's only, as we learned in Sunday school as children, there's only one life and soon will be passed. And it's only what's done for Christ will last. In the height of your glory, physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually, financially, any other way that you want to put it, just remember this, this too shall pass. And only thing that's going to last is what we've done for Jesus Christ when we stand there. And remember when God takes you to the city limits of hell and lets you look into it, God wants you to weigh. God wants you to put in the balance, so to speak, that which you love and that which is keeping you out of hell or out of heaven, that sin that you love. There's only one reason that you're not a Christian tonight, and that's because there's a sin that you love greater than you do Jesus Christ. It's because that you love unrighteousness more than you love righteousness. It's because that you love the things of the world more than you do the things of the world to come. It's basically boiled down to this. That sin that you love tonight is what's keeping you from going to heaven. And that sin, when you stand at the city limits of hell, will seem so insignificant. You'll begin to scream, I believe that hell could nearly begin right at the city limits for you when you realize how cheaply you sold your soul for Jesus himself said, what shall it profit a man if he should gain this whole world? And lose his soul. Beloved, I wonder what it's going to be like for you when we stand at the city limits of heaven. Or what it'll be like at the city limits of hell. Let's stand together with our heads bowed. Our Father, tonight we've stopped. We've looked over John's shoulder right at the city limits and we've looked in and we've seen the beauty of him who is the fairest of 10,000. We've looked at the golden streets and the pearly gates and the river of life and we've looked among the people that are gathered there. And, oh God, if it had happened this moment, there'd be some loved ones missing. Nothing ever, ever, ever again could be done for it. It's over. It's too late then. Father, we realize that the things that seem so important down here will seem so unimportant up there. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to get our priorities straightened out. If we're not witnessing for Jesus, if we're not faithful, Father, we pray that, that you'd help us to see it. May it come by divine conviction. May there be a moving of the Spirit of God here in hearts tonight. And people take that stand for God. And Father, there's some here standing at the city limits of hell tonight. And Lord, if they'd open their eyes, if they'd really think that sin that they love... Is it really worth going to hell over? And oh God, if they can think with a spiritual mind for a fleeting second, they'd say, no, my God, no, it isn't. We believe that it'd come to Jesus. We thank you for listening to the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time for the Making Much of Jesus podcast.